0: of the, the big challenges in the communities in which we work is even when an individual has collateral, it's not very meaningful to the lender, right? And so so very few banks will step into this space. And it takes an innovative micro lender, an innovative community development financial institution to say, how how do we make this work and how do we mitigate our risk through
1: technical assistance instead of through collateral on the back end? Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Rural Matters, the leading podcast on rural education, health and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and when I'm not doing this program, you can find me working with rural health organizations and speaking around the country on rural health leadership, quality, stakeholder engagement, and of course, strategies to address our nation's rural hospital closures, which is such an important thing to be talking about today. Now, I do want to thank all of our listeners for your, who are coming back for more with your continued support. We're getting close to our goal of 25,000 downloads this year, so I thank you for that. And for those of you who are returning and for those of you who are not quite sure what this podcast is about, I will tell you that our goal here at Rural Matters is to provide a broad perspective of what's happening on the ground in rural communities. So, that means we're talking about everything from rural policies the various issues affecting rural health workforce, and the challenges of shrinking education and inequities in broadband, connectivity, housing, and so much more. Now, in every episode, we aim to explore what's not working, but more than that, more importantly, we wanna provide relevant examples of how rural communities and regions are overcoming their challenges, innovating, collaborating, and providing promise to the estimated 57 million people residing in rural America today. Now, today's episode is the third in our four-part in-depth series where we're taking a deep dive into what it's like and what it could be like in the future to live in rural America. It's a series we're calling Rural Communities, Conquering Challenges, Optimizing Opportunities. And of course, we hope that you'll tell your colleagues, your friends, your neighbors, your clients, because we really think that they'll find this to be an important uh, series for them to be listening to as well. We are so thrilled to be bringing you this uh, four-part series because of the support from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropy dedicated solely to health. Since 1972, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has supported research and programs targeting some of America's most pressing health issues, from substance abuse, To improving access to quality care. Now in this third episode, we're going to focus on rural economic development and business opportunities. So we'll be looking at both the current challenges as well as the unique and creative solutions happening in local communities around the country. Now in our fourth episode, when that comes up, we'll conclude and bring it all together and take a look ahead ahead at rural health, education, and business and how they intersect. Uh, We've got some incredibly informative guests lined up for the series and we hope that you've already subscribed, but if you haven't, we invite you to do so so that you can get downloads of these episodes automatically. All right, so with that said, let's get started with our conversation. Our first guest is Janet Topolsky. Now, for 35 years, Janet has helped community leaders, organizations, and policymakers across the country find, create, and spread innovative community and economic development strategies with a special focus on rural America. Uh, since 1993, she has directed the Aspen Institute Community Strategies Group, where she has specialized in connecting low-wealth rural and urban places and populations to regional economic development and better livelihoods, family asset building, peer learning design and facilitation, and, of course, also community development philanthropy, building the capacity of place-rooted foundations to improve local economies. I cannot wait to hear about that. Now, before Aspen, I'll just mention to you that Janet worked as a development policy analyst as communications director for the Corporation for Enterprise Development, Recently renamed Prosperity Now, and was also the editor of CFED's Entrepreneurial Economy Review, a special assistant to the director of the Michigan Department of Commerce, and as a youth organizer and policy advocate. Also, I just want to mention uh, Janet is a, a native of Detroit, Michigan. She's a graduate of James Madison College of Michigan State University and holds a master's of public policy from the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. So wonderful to have you with us. Also with us today is Inez Polonius. Inez is CEO of Communities Unlimited, a CDFI and community economic development organization in the rural South. Now, Communities Unlimited works side by side with local leaders to create fair access to resources needed to sustain healthy communities, healthy businesses, and healthy families. CU resides in the solution space, providing direct assistance and capital to micro enterprises, small businesses, as well as water and wastewater systems, in persistently poor rural places across Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. Now, in 1998, uh, yeah, 1998, Inez founded Alt Consulting, dedicated to starting, growing, transitioning, and turning around micro-enterprises and small businesses in the Arkansas Delta until a successful merger with Community Resource Group in 2014 formed Communities Unlimited, Inc., Inez earned her MBA and an M.A. in economics from Boston University and received her undergraduate degree from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Now today, Inez serves on the board of directors of the Rural Community Assistance Partnership and of the Association for Enterprise Opportunity. She is a 2017 Valley Fellow, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation interdisciplinary research leader, an active member of the Partners for Rural Transformation, and the National Wealth Works Network. Welcome to everyone to the podcast. Uh, also, finally for this episode, we will be bringing David Erickson into this Rural Matters conversation. David is the Senior Vice President and Head of Outreach and Education, with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and when he joins us, we'll talk about his research, which includes community development, uh, finance uh, for affordable housing, economic development, and institutional changes that benefit low-income communities, and so much more. This is a powerhouse panel, to be sure, so I thank you for your patience. With with all that, I'd like to welcome our guests, and let's get started with this really insightful role Matters conversation. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Janet, well let's start with you. Just talk to us a little bit about um, your work uh, at Aspen, and I think you know for many of us who follow this space, we understand what what the Aspen Institute is, but give us an idea of what you all do and your role in that organization.
2: Well, I I actually think that a lot of people don't understand the Aspen Institute, and I don't don't think we have enough time on the podcast for me to explain all of that. Um, It's a great place. And the way to think about it is there are lots of different efforts going on at the Aspen Institute, uh, almost individual programs that are really trying to make a difference on the ground, um, working with people on the ground, leaders on the ground that are trying to sort of improve uh, livelihoods and improve quality of life. In America and around the world. So my group, as you already said to the listeners, uh, has really been working on the ground with leaders at the community level in this case, and that's our focus as leaders at the community level who are trying to make tough decisions about their economy. And so we try to help convene, equip, and, and inspire local leaders as they're trying to build more prosperous regions, but at the same time, advance those who are living on the economic margins right so you can you can do a lot to improve an economy without helping the people who aren't doing well or the firms that aren't doing well or the places that aren't doing well and we focus on Helping leaders in a variety of different ways in in peer learning cohorts or one on uh, on the ground with specific places or with national convenings to really learn from each other, to learn from the people who look like us, communities that look like us, on what are you doing that's making a difference, that's going to improve the economy, but also help people get ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. And so uh, now the, the two of your organizations interface in some ways. So Inez, tell us a little bit about Communities Unlimited, which um, I'm just becoming familiar with just in the past few weeks. What, what is the organization and what role do you play?
0: So we are an on-the-ground organization in seven states in the south, as you mentioned in the introduction. So we have 60 staff members who are in the field every day. We serve about 600 communities mm-hmm. across that large footprint um, with a holistic approach to rural community economic development. So when we speak about an entrepreneurial ecosystem, we're looking at that really broadly. Uh, we build on leadership teams in communities that are ready for change and those leadership teams reflect the demographics of that community. We then help that leadership team begin to think about what is an entrepreneurial ecosystem here? How do you create an environment that supports strong small businesses, but also those startup entrepreneurs and those young people who want to either come back or stay to start businesses. And then we look at the support systems that that community needs in terms of basic infrastructure, primarily water and wastewater infrastructure, which is a real growing issue in these rural communities to be addressed. Um, And then we have the community development financial institution, that provides capital uh, to the community, uh, to the water wastewater system, to the entrepreneurs to really help them start and grow. the The last piece, which is really central to all of the support work, is uh, the team of management consultants that work one-on-one with these rural businesses to provide them with a management capacity, uh, the market agility, digital marketing services to be competitive um, in our economy. So we're really looking at that rural economy from a very holistic perspective. And I think that's, that's where our impact is.
2: Yeah, Michelle, if I can interject, I think part of the, part of the place that where Inez's work and our, our work sort of really uh, coincides, and actually we've both been involved in the, the National Wealth Works Collaborative, is the approach to economic development. So in, in a lot of rural places over the last decades, and actually not just rural, but urban places, people think incorrectly about economic development as business recruitment right? Mm -hmm. Or resource extraction, especially in rural, because so much of rural development has focused on extracting resources and then selling them uh, away and taking them out out of the ground or out of the hills (laughs) or out of the air and the water. Mm -hmm. But the approach to economic development that Ines and her colleagues practice and that we have been focusing on with leaders across the country is different. It's, It's about wealth creation. It's a place or a region looking at the assets it has, it has, the people assets, the natural assets, the built assets, the capital assets, or the financial assets, the political assets, the cultural assets, and saying, what, you know, what do we already have here that we can build on to build our economy? Mm-hmm. And, and to sort of say, what do we know how to do or make, or what could we do or make? And who wants that? Where is the demand for that? And once we know where the demand is, can we make that whole thing here in this region? And if we can't, how can we fill those gaps? locally. And and by filling those gaps locally and being able to create a product or service that's in demand, you're able to build your local economy and you're building it from what you have, as opposed to thinking that the answer comes from outside the community or outside the region.
1: Yeah, I think those are excellent points. And and it leads me to this question because, uh, you know, I don't think many of us, I certainly haven't really thought about it in that perspective. We always think about, you know, what we hear kind of the buzz phrase today is we're going to create jobs. We've got a lot of people out there making promises, about creating jobs and and typically what that means is as you just so eloquently extracting and shipping it out. So, I want to ask each of you and either one of you can answer this and, and maybe both if you've got something else to add. So, with that said, what are some of the key sectors and trends driving rural economies in the U.S. today?
2: Well, let, let me take a first stab at that and then, then uh, Inez can throw in. But, you know, I think one of the, one of the key trends, I mean, there are a couple of trends I think are important that may or may not have to do with the economy, but they affect the economy. And the first one I would say is that we don't have a lot of cult, rural cultural competency in this country. So the image that rural seems to have in the minds of most of America is not a positive one. Mm-hmm. And that's incorrect. I mean, 19.3% of the population is rural in this country. That's almost one-fifth of the population. And there's been modest growth in rural, counter to uh, the sort of perception that it's emptying out. There's been modest growth from 2016 to eighteen. Every state in the union has some rural counties that are growing Mm -hmm. and some that are declining. Uh, You know, another thing is that people of color comprise 21% of the rural population. But they produced 83% of its growth between 2000 and 2010. So there's a sense in America that rural is not diverse, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not true. Um, The the military, you know, 54% of our recruits and 24% of our veterans are rural. So you can't work on equity or inequality in America without working in rural. And it's just something people don't sort of understand. And I think it affects the sense of a lot of investors that there's no one there to invest in or nothing there to invest in. And that's where you get to, you know, what, what's really driving the economy, right? And people, and I do this all over the country. I've done it in New York City in the last two weeks. I've done, I've done it in Aspen, Colorado. I've done it many places. And you ask people, well, what, what do you think is the industry that's driving yeah, I did in Baltimore with the with the Federal Reserve Board recently. What What do you think is driving the rural economy? And the first answer is always agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. When you come to thinking about where are people employed, the rural workforce. And I think of the people. When I think of development, I think of the people, right? And in terms of workforce, the driver in rural economies, the 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 um, what the top employer is health and education. Which yes. you know, mm-hmm. is government. Mm-hmm. The next largest employer is manufacturing. Twenty two percent of the rural workforce is in manufacturing. In fact, a larger percentage of the rural workforce is employed in manufacturing than in urban. And then you get to trade, transport and utilities, then to leisure, recreation, tourism and hospitality, and then agriculture, which employs only five percent of the rural workforce. Isn't that interesting? So so we don't think you know I'm not saying AG isn't more isn't an important driver it is but in terms of the people and where they're employed it's not as important. It's now so what we, we think. Need to, yeah. It's, we have, it's to, not dig, what we have think. to dig
1: deeper. We have to dig deeper because the, the right. larger media narrative out there, I mean, we just see kind of this reoccurring, you know, role, B-roll of what it looks like. And I so appreciate you providing the, these statistics because they matter. They're important. And I would imagine that, you know, what we talk a lot about in our work um, is the fact that statistics don't tell the, the whole story. And so it's marrying the statistics with the actual work that's being done on the ground. Um, I want to go, we have to take a really quick break. I want to get back and I want you to, um, touch on if you can, just some of the you know traditional economic development, you know make create jobs for a few years. but I want to hear from both of you some stories about sustainability and what you're seeing on the ground once you kind of what you talked about earlier investing in these communities in all sorts of ways. And then I want you to give us some examples uh, about some of the, the ways that you are making a difference on the ground. So just hang on with us for just a moment because at this point I do want to acknowledge our sponsors for today's episode first, As I said earlier, I'm so proud to have the support of and to be working in partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for this four-part series. Um, For more than 45 years, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been working to change how people think about health. The foundation is committed to ensuring that everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity to achieve better health where they live. Learn, work, and play. Now, you can learn more about Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. That's rwjf.org. Or, of course, please follow them on Twitter at rwjf. And then I also want to say that we are so pleased to have the support from Thomas USAF. Coming up on December 4th, Thomas USAF is sponsoring the 20th Annual National World Lenders Roundtable in Washington, D.C., this event will feature some of the most active lenders and brokers in the Southeast, in the SBA and USDA-guaranteed lending industries. There is no charge to attend. I will be there talking about rural health matters. Uh, more details, including the agenda and speakers, can be found at round t- at the Roundtable website, which is nrlt.com. Okay, so now let's get back to this discussion. We, there, there's so much for us to be talking about today uh, with Janet Topolsky and Inez Polinus. Um, so let's. I'm going to go back to my, the question I had. You know, often traditional economic development may create jobs for a few years. Um, but we, as we've seen, is when industries pull up stakes and they decide to move away from those communities. How does that um, create wealth? I mean, how is that sustainable for economies in small communities? So, talk, talk talk to us a little bit about that and what happens when when maybe a major corporation decides to move its operations away and and the impact that has on rural communities and some of the ways that they're able to. Kind of pick back up, supplement, and, and create more programs that are sustainable for them, economic development that's sustainable.
0: So, I want to address that um, really looking at a study that was published last year by the Kansas City Federal Reserve called uh, Grow Your Own. And they ran the numbers and uh, showed that states across the country spend $50 billion collectively each year on traditional economic development. So recruiting those jobs into um, the communities through manufacturing, etc. What we're seeing on the ground is that 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 may work for some urban centers, um, maybe a micropolitan center, but really doesn't touch on the rural economy. Um, and those jobs and those manufacturers that are in rural places um, often, because of automation, either see a cutback in jobs or see um, the the entire operation, you know, moving to another state altogether. And the work we do is to then organize. A team of folks that look at um, exactly what Janet had talked about earlier. What are the assets in our community that we can build on? We also look at what are the quality of life gaps that we can fill here locally. It could be as transformative as a coffee shop on a downtown square where suddenly people can meet and exchange ideas and, and begin to have that sense of community back. Mm -hmm. as well as young people um, that have new ideas and and bring those back with them if they've gone to college somewhere else or maybe they've started a business elsewhere. Um, We talked earlier about the trends in the rural economy, and I just want to highlight um, a couple of other trends that are really driving this. And One is the rapid growth of online businesses, Mm. freelance businesses, and the whole gig economy. So when a person loses a job and then says, you know what, I can be a contractor and I can provide the same level of service to different corporations, they oftentimes go home and say, you know what, my quality of life is better. I'm around my family. My cost of living is lower. Um, And and that's a really important trend that is beginning to impact this growth in rural communities. Um, And we have lots of examples of individual businesses that have started in this
1: way. So, talk to us a little bit about some of the um, you know I, I re- kind of reading in our notes here about some of the economic development opportunities with respect to food value chain, uh, biofuels, manufacturing. Can you give us some examples about uh, you know some of the the new developments and the emerging developments around these industries and rural in particular?
0: I think the shift in the food culture and industry in the United States is really exciting for rural America. Um, we started a food value chain in the Arkansas Mississippi Delta focused on Memphis initially as our market. What we're finding now is that the rural communities are stepping up and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we need our grocery store back, we need a farmer's market, we want this local produce, so we've had to shift our strategy to encompass that much larger market in the region. Um, And our focus is is black-owned farmers, right, or or farms, uh, because they have, you know, smaller amounts of land. It's much harder for them to compete on commodity crops uh, compared to a corporate farm with, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. And they're very interested in growing the food locally, and then being able to sell it locally. Um, And now what we're beginning to see is that food distributors are coming to us and saying, connect us with those farms. We want access to that healthy local food um, that we can distribute here locally in the region.
1: You know, it's interesting, let me just say this, I just read yesterday, and you, you both probably have read it too, you know, just an article that just came out about how many rural communities and rural farms aren't Able to afford the food that they're growing, so this seems to me that this is countering that you know that particular very unfortunate dynamic that we've seen. If you could take
0: transportation cost out, mm-hmm. that's a huge part of what drives food cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what what we're trying to do by connecting the local farms to a a farmer's market that is within a close driving distance and then thinking about how do we over time turn that farmer's market into a right, correctly sized grocery store for that community to make sure that folks have affordable, healthy foods and aren't just relying on processed
2: foods at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of other examples besides food. I mean, I think, I think food is a great example because people really connect with food, you know <laughs> you know what Absolutely. I mean? Right. And so they can understand it. I mean, you know, this whole drive towards 50-mile meals or 100-mile meals, meaning all the food on a meal is sourced within 50 or 100 miles. I mean, in Athens, Ohio, or in southeastern Ohio, they their goal is a 30-mile meal, and they're achieving it. I mean, so it's pretty amazing. But manufacturing, I mean, I, we can give you examples of, for example example in Minnesota there are a number of, you, you you talked about community philanthropy earlier there are a number of community foundations in Minnesota that have looked at their manufacturers small lot of small manufacturers in their economy who were having trouble getting ahead maybe 30 years ago but what they did and this has been emulated since is they they went around and talked to the businesses and they said well what you know why what would you, what do you need to do better and they'd say well we need new technology but we don't have workers here who can who can use it? So it doesn't matter, and we we can't put together the right kind of loan to be able to buy it. and so these community foundations started doing business lending to fill the gaps, to take the risk off of the local community banks or whatever to fill to have a capital stack you know that was complete. So they did business lending so the businesses could buy the new machinery, the new technology for manufacturing. And then they put together partnerships with the, with the state manufacturing section service, with local community colleges, and with the employers to be able to train employees on that new machinery while they're being paid at the workforce, so at the workplace. And over time, over like 20 or 30 years, manufacturing has grown in the regions that have been doing this this approach. And in fact, you know, in the last recession, they had no layoffs, right? And wages have gone up. And, and there, are, there are many, many more jobs. But that's because someone looked at the whole system mm-hmm. and took action to make the system work. And that's the thing. You have to look at this whole development thing, not as siloed. Okay, business lending over here and uh, human development through education and training and whatever and early childhood education over here and childcare over there right. and blah, blah, blah over here. And you got to put the whole package together and figure out where the gaps are
1: and fill them. I agree. That's we talk challenge. about, this, you know, when a when a rural hospital is able to you know borrow thirty million dollars, we say if you build it, they won't necessarily come. So we have to look at the whole package. We have to look at the community's perception about taking control of their own health care, workforce development, all those things. I could not agree with you more. Let me ask you this, because we're talking about some of these bigger businesses. Um, just speaking specifically about entrepreneurs, and um, and as you talked a little bit about somebody going home and maybe doing some consulting, you know, just through the comforts of their own home. And um, so let's talk just a few minutes about entrepreneurs in rural America, and what entrepreneurs in rural America need to do. To st- how do they get started, and how will they thrive? Um, especially when I think about some of the challenges with respect to broadband connectivity. Although we're seeing a lot more movement today on that than we have in the past a couple of years, but what are some of the uh, strategies that you both can think of to help entrepreneurs, just the, sol- you know, the solo person or a couple of people coming together to start a business? What is the secret sauce, if you will, for them to get started and to, and to begin to see, get some traction and, and be sustainable?
0: So the secret sauce lies in really intensive technical assistance, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is what we've been providing on the ground for 20 years. It starts with a feasibility study where you sit with the entrepreneur and together we look at what business model is going to work here, and then how do we plug into a regional market, the next micropolitan or metropolitan area, or the national market, or even you know looking at exports, because one of the main reasons for failure is when the business is only dependent on the local market, and even a restaurant can begin to cater in the next mic- micropolitan area, or begin to create you know its own special, literally special sauce or seasoning, mm-hmm. or that it can sell and generate additional revenue. So so rural businesses have to be more creative um, to succeed and and they are and that's what's so exciting because the mindset in rural is one of problem solving and then the next piece is how do we structure the capital appropriately uh, one of the, the big challenges in the communities in which we work is even when an individual has collateral, it's not very meaningful to the lender, right? And so, so very few banks will step into this space and it takes an innovative micro lender, an innovative community development financial institution to say, how, how do we make this work and how do we mitigate our risk through technical assistance instead of through collateral on the back end? Mm-hmm. And so, instead of giving somebody a $100,000 loan when all they need is $18,000. How can we say, look, we're going to give you this to start off with and give you a chance to catch your breath and be able to meet those loan payments and as soon as you need more capital, we're right there with you. And so we've made loans to some of our rural entrepreneurs, we've made four and five loans consecutively because they're growing. They need more working capital, and we're right there beside them to provide that capital instead of giving them one big loan um, that they really can't can't sustain. Which um, uh, is you know an
1: awesome burden, I would imagine, You know, yeah. to, way, the way you describe it just seems so reasonable, so responsible. And I really appreciate you sharing that with our guests because it doesn't have to be this you know, life. You know, this the stress and the weight of the world on somebody's shoulders, um, and starting small, it just seems so practical to me. And it's
0: we we have too few micro lenders that serve rural areas. Uh, we have too few CDFIs that serve small businesses in rural areas. Uh, it's it's difficult work um and And the transaction costs are are pretty high, but if we 're serious about rural economic development, that 's what it takes uh, because these businesses then also we have to look at those those local businesses from three perspectives: one is they keep wealth local, two, they create local jobs. Three, they inspire other entrepreneurs to start a business, and suddenly you have this mindset shift within the community that was once waiting for somebody to bring in jobs to now say, you know what? We can create these businesses. We can create these jobs for ourselves,
2: and the wealth stays local and is recycled within the community. I mean, there really has to be an entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem. And another trend that I think is really important, and it's related to this capital piece. I mean, the the, the thing is that, that community development financial institutions, as well as local banks, whatever, they might have the dollars to lend out, right? But... But you've got to also be able to support their ability to provide the business assistance to help those mm-hmm. those businesses do better, and that's the that's the funding that's hard to get. It's interesting though to to know, and and then there, there are these things like opportunity zones now that are providing tax incentives for people with capital to to do lending in low-income and distressed areas, it's hard for those dollars to find rural America because they're looking for ready deals. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have the business assistance there, you don't have as many shovel-ready, like, you know, <laughs> Whether it's a service or a, a product making business, you don't have that many shovel ready deals. But there's a, there is an emerging trend that's really interesting in what uh, our one of our colleague organizations, Locust Impact Investing, is calling catalytic uh, community capital, where local foundations, right, place rooted foundations, so they might be a community foundation or a family foundation, are beginning to look at how they can invest part of their endowed assets in local businesses. Uh And this is an emerging trend that is very exciting because many of them are learning how to do it. Mm -hmm. If you think of a community foundation or a local foundation that might spend 5% a year of its income on grant making, when really 95% of its assets are sitting there in endowment and are being invested around the world you know, in their investment portfolio, can you take a percentage of that and invest it locally in business? So, this is a, an emerging and exciting uh, area of activity right now. We're working now with a number of community foundations that that are doing this.
1: You know, it just seems to me, in listening to you both, that, you know, that we're talking about completely different kind of lending models, because in the traditional lending sense, and those who I'm accustomed to working with when they're building a new healthcare facility, for example, they've got very specific intention, which is to uh, you know make a really good return financially on their investment, and and it's not to say that what you're talking about isn't also true. However, it just seems to me the intent is is different. Um, that they're investing in people and communities and not just in bricks and mortar. And I just think that I agree with you, both. This is um, not only a, a trend, but I think it's necessary. You know, just as a nation, for us to look at this differently, and you know. You plant the seeds and things will grow if, if you nurture it. So I appreciate that. I, I do want to ask you both, and i like to um, end each episode with this question. And, and for some, it's a, a bit more challenging because it just depends on where you are in the space. But I, I want to ask you, why does rural matter to each of you? And why do you believe? What's the, what is the, the one thing you can say to those listening who you know might not live in rural or might have left rural? and are trying to decide if they're coming back, why should rural matter to all of us as fellow, fellow, you know, kind of global citizens here? So if you could each answer that, I would sure appreciate it.
0: I'll start from a personal, but then also from a big picture perspective. So, so I live in rural America in Lincoln, Arkansas. I live in the suburbs of Lincoln, which has 1,900 people. So suburbs is a very relative term. Um, and it's, It's the quality of life, because to me, rural America really embodies what we call the American values the relationships that I have with my neighbors I couldn't have in urban areas because we are reliant on each other. Mm-hmm. And those neighbors might be Amish, those neighbors might be Latino, um, those neighbors might be Caucasian. And and we all figure it out together and we all end up in the same community center when we vote and when we need to clean up the fallen tree or, you know, whatever the, the particular project might be. Um, and and there to me there's value in, in those relationships. Um, I think nationally our economy will never truly thrive unless our whole economy thrives. And and rural is such a large piece of that. So 17% of all businesses, large and small, are located in rural communities. Um, And we need to make sure that they have the support to grow and to thrive. Uh, Because at the end of the day, this country is about choice. Mm-hmm. And the people who live in rural communities like I do, we do it because we choose to live there and we want to continue to live there. And we want our local communities to thrive. Um, so that's, that's why
2: I know rural matters.
1: Thank you for that. Janet, what's you.
2: Yeah, what Inez said, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I mean, I think the thing I would underline in what she said, because she hit uh, uh, most of the main points, is that we're interdependent. I mean, why does rural matter? I mean, it's sort of a ridiculous question. Uh, Water, air, food, recreation. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I I often will tell people in cities, and I'm a girl who grew up in the city of Detroit, and I've lived in Chicago, I've lived in San Francisco, I've lived in Albany, New York, I've lived in Washington, D.C., Ann Arbor, Michigan, Lansing, Michigan. But I do most of my work in rural America, and, you know, maybe, maybe. I, I don't even want to say biased. Maybe I've been educated by the fact that I've been there so much. And I, mm-hmm. when you go to rural America, you understand it a lot more. And if you don't go to rural America, go there to get understanding. We are interdependent. And it's not only natural resources, though. It's people resources. And that's the thing you need to understand. We all need to understand that rural is a hotbed of innovation. And there there's a heck of a lot of innovation in this country that was born in rural. And, you know, people are raised in rural who then go on to do great things the world over, just as people who come from the the city. You know, it's 20% of our population. So it's people, it's innovation, and it's stewardship of the resources we all need to live together.
1: That's wonderful. I appreciate it. I'm I'm in your shoes. I was born in uh, Minnesota and then, you know, um, you know, came out the Chicago way and so forth. But I've spent the better part of 20 years of my life working in rural communities. And so I everything you say resonates with me. So Annette, we're thankful to have Mr. David J. Erickson join us uh, in this really important conversation about rural economic development. David is a senior vice president and head of outreach and education at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So his areas of research include community development, finance, affordable housing, economic development, of course, and institutional changes that benefit low-income communities. David, I really appreciate you joining us uh, for this particular special episode of Rural Matters.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, we've been talking about all a broad-based uh, um, spectrum of economic development in rural communities across this country, and so I'd like to ask you to share some of your really, um, you know, well-schooled insights on the subject since you really are a subject matter expert on this. First, can you share with us what unique economic challenges and opportunities that you see rural communities are facing today?
3: Sure. And I'd, I'd like to say, too, uh, that these views are my own and, and don't represent the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or the Federal Reserve System. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think there are lots of opportunities and challenges, uh, it, you know, in terms of the way we see it is that there are probably three types of rural communities that, you know, they're not all it's not all a monolith that you've got um, Some areas that have proximity to uh, recreation or natural beauty that really are sort of thriving in many ways in terms of second home purchases and, uh, you know, vacation uh, 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 destinations and and the kinds of um, recreation economy that is really buttressing the traditional rural economies around agriculture and other uh, uh, resource extraction type Uh, Activities. Mm -hmm. Um, Those places are doing reasonably well. You know, you, you you contrast that with a second group that's really struggling. Uh, with, with pretty significant population loss and the sort of the, the, the undergirding aspects of the economy, whether it's agriculture in the Midwest or perhaps it's timber or mining or something like that, um, where the demand for those goods or, or the availability of those uh, resources are beginning to be diminished uh, without those sort of proximity to to, to to larger markets and and not having those recreational opportunities are, are, really struggling because they're not, they can't fall back on that, um, the, the activity that the first group can. And then, of course, you just have the chronically poor areas that, that, you know, this is, we think of the sort of Appalachia, Mississippi Delta, Native American reservations that have just never really quite been able to ignite that sort of underlying economy that could really support the needs of the residents in those places. Um, I, I
1: so appreciate you mentioning that because we've got, you know, kind of this national narrative about what rural is and isn't. And I work in the rural healthcare space. And we have a saying that is if you've seen one critical access hospital. You've seen one and I have got <laughs> one, it's got 650 employees and they built their base on specialists. It's a booming tourist area. And then to your point, we've got some in communities that are just struggling to stay open. They've got, you know, kind of the poorest, sickest population. And I think that can't be stated enough how are we going to understand if we don't really dive, uh, take a deep dive into the kinds of rural communities that we're talking about here? Neither, none of them um, have the same circumstances. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, it kind of brings me to the next point, which is, you know, we talked a lot on this program about the connectivity between rural health, rural education and rural economies or rural business. So from your perspective, um, I'd really be curious about what you believe the relationship between economic well-being and health is.
3: Well, we know the number one driver of uh, 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 well, let me try this again. Um, the One of the leading uh, indicators of future of your health is uh, whether or not you have a job if you want one. And Mm -hmm. so there is absolutely a health and wealth connection that, that has been very well documented in the research. And that's something that if you don't have access to economic opportunity, that is going to that is going to hurt your health and uh and and that sort of becomes a spiral in some cases where uh someone in poor health without access to economic opportunity can sort of spiral and and the health can get worse and make it even harder to get a job later on if opportunity returns and so so the the the, the connection the connection is absolutely rock solid and we have to do a better job of trying to connect efforts at improving health to also improving the local economy. And sometimes that manifests in, in, in very uh, concrete ways where the health sector is actually investing alongside with the economic development uh, and and sources of capital to improve the local economy. So you see hospitals and banks investing together in affordable housing, for example, to sort of To make uh, those communities that they um, where they both reside uh, more competitive by having a better housing stock that can attract workers who can really uh, and and have a healthy uh, home, uh, a place to call home that we know is also a very powerful social determinant of health.
1: Yeah, we talked about that on the previous episode of this four-part series with, uh, series with David Lipsky about that very point. And, you know, and we talked a lot about where in rural communities where there's, you know, kind of a lack of inventory of affordable housing. And, and, and of course, we see the numbers in terms of, you know, their access to health care as well. So. You know, that makes me curious to ask you, given what you've shared, what role can regulators like the New York Fed play in promoting economic growth and health and well being in these rural areas? You know, how where's the intersection there?
3: Well there's some aspects we play where we're as a as a bank regulator we uh encourage banks uh, under the Community Reinvestment Act to uh invest in things like infrastructure and 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 we've just been we've given some guidance on that 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 would include things like rural broadband for example mm-hmm. uh and so uh, you know we try to sort of make we try to encourage our banking partners to sort of think think about those uh, opportunities that they can invest into uh, rural areas. We also play kind of an unusual role in, as a kind of a convener, and that 's something that many people don 't really recognize but um, you know the the there's in many cases there 's kind of a coordination problem and, and sometimes the different parties don 't know each other, and there 's often different agendas but mm-hmm. you know as, as the Federal Reserve, we can come in and really uh, hold and curate a conversation of all the different stakeholders in a rural place and have them sort of uh, imagine a different future together and kind of come up with some and brainstorm and think about ways, uh, d- d- different strategies for economic growth and for ways to, to help their most vulnerable uh, in, their, in their communities. And also, you know, as we improve that uh, the economy, we know we're improving health as well.
1: I appreciate that as well, because we we really see every opportunity, collaboration is the key. And if we just kind of all pursue our own self-interest, how are we going to advance, you know, the mission that we all, you know, on this program that we all are on together? So in the time that we have, I just want to ask you a couple more things. Um, Can you give our listeners a few examples of the work that the New York Fed has done in this space? Like some tangible examples
3: sure so we we have a we have a program we call investment connections where we 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 try to find uh we try to play a, a matchmaking role a sort of a shark tank type uh, approach where we bring we, we try to find nonprofits that have a, a good uh, a business model that they need uh, financing for, and then and then marry them together with uh, banks and and nonprofit banks. We call community development financial institutions that really are in a position to finance those business models. And so uh, we're 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 having our next uh, one of these uh, events in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. uh, which in many cases, you know, outside of San Juan, is quite rural, and uh, it's it's a it's a great way in which we can sort of play matchmaker. But we also um, Spend a lot of time sort of researching the, the the issue. And so we do a small business credit survey where we try to understand the financing needs of small businesses in rural areas. Uh, we also then can try to convene local stakeholders, as I mentioned before, to sort of think about ways in which uh, in areas around our district and, and, and our and the other reserve banks around the country do something very similar where they try to find ways in which you can sort of bring all the stakeholders together to sort of have really productive conversations around what would, uh, an, what would a, 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 a plan to improve um, the local economy look like and how might the different players uh, play different roles in order to achieve that?
1: I mean, that just, I think it's so important for our listeners to understand that there are so many stakeholders out there, you know, including in the financial space and the housing space, the healthcare space, where, you know, there really is this collaborative, Mission-driven effort, if you will, um, to make sure that rural communities, you know, aren't just you know surviving because I don't think that's the point, right? The point is that rural communities can begin to be restored and thrive because otherwise, we're just going to be chasing this down the road, you know, for decades to come. And, and so, with that, I just want to ask you, as I, I do, and every program asking our guests, you know, why does rural matter to you? Some of us don't come from rural. I happen to be, you know, from a rural family in Minnesota, but you know, moved later on, but. Why should why does rural matter to you, and why should rural matter to not just those who live in rural or work in rural?
3: You, you have a background in that. My my father's from Canton, South Dakota, and I grew up you know visiting farms of that were in the family, and that's something that I think many of us are not too far removed mm-hmm. from that rural experience. Uh, and so I think we all there's a there's a deep care for for that that the, the, the strong rural tradition that we want to keep thriving. I, I, you mentioned about. Um, But we want to be more than just surviving, right? We want to thrive. And I believe, and you mentioned collaboration before, it's my firm belief that the rural areas can become beacons to the rest of the country and maybe even the rest of the world and how to collaborate. I think that is something that rural areas can do better than any other region or geography because when you try to get everyone around the table, you can literally get them around a table. So, so true. (laughs) And uh, you have situations like I was just listening to uh, Marian Wright Edelman, who started the Children's Defense Fund, and she was saying, look, you, you've got to put kids at the center of the table. They don't come in pieces. You have to work together. The pediatrician has to talk to the librarian, has to talk to the school teacher. And that can actually happen in rural places. And we could think about do, new business models where we really did care for all of our kids to make sure they, they thrive through childhood, throughout the life course, entering into adulthood with all the skills they need to thrive healthy, productive and when that gets figured out at the local at the rural level I think that could be something that the rural areas can teach urban areas, and maybe even uh, not just in this country, but around the world.
1: You are spot on. You know, I started my, my work in, in healthcare in an academic, you know, urban setting. And when I was introduced to rural, I was hooked because of, of exactly what you said. We could see change happen before our eyes versus, you know, a 10-year process. So, my goodness, thank you, David Erickson um, from Federal Reserve Bank of New York. We certainly do appreciate your time and your expertise, and we hope to talk to you again soon on Rural Matters. I hope so. I just want to thank our guests today uh, for joining us in this great conversation. Janet Topolsky from the Aspen Institute, Inez Polonius from the uh, Communities Unlimited, and David Erickson. Uh, All of you, I just really want to thank you. And I also want to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners because they are so important uh, for this podcast. So they are a center for rural affairs Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research and Rural Education, Learning Blade, NCTA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, as well as AASA, the School Superintendent's Association, the National Rural Assembly, and Save Your Town, all of these partnering organizations help Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussions of the issues affecting our rural communities, including the one we had today. So. If you would like more information on, on, on these rural issues or to suggest a guest or a topic, you can just email us at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail.com. We'd appreciate if you would rate this podcast on iTunes. That's so important. And also do tell your friends and your colleagues about us. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter at Rural Matters Pod, and you can follow me personally at MRB Impact. Finally, I'd like to thank our Rural Matters producer, Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Simples. We know you have many podcast options. There are so many good ones out there at your fingertips. So we thank you for listening to ours and we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters.